Neither shouldest thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither shouldest thou have delivered up those who of his that did remain in the day of distress. In the previous verses of this prophecy, Obadiah declares the great judgment that would come upon Edom. And in doing so, as we have seen, this, the, the majority of this passage, the majority of this text is in relation to that very truth of God's judgment being declared upon Edom, Esau's descendants, and how God was going to utterly cut them off. He was going to completely destroy them, eradicate them. And we've seen multiple verses throughout Scripture, multiple passages that testify and prophesy of this very truth. And so Obadiah, in, in this prophecy, as we have clearly seen, declares that the great judgment that would come upon Edom. And in doing so, we also have observed, as we saw Paul in his epistles as well, that Obadiah is personally overwhelmed by such destruction which would befall Edom. As he expressed in verses 5 and 6, if you look back again, he says, If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? How are the things of Esau searched out? In other words, how are they ransacked, he's saying. And how are his hidden things sought up or how they are grazed to bear? Now remember, we saw where thieves and robbers here in verse 5, and that this is not a, a repetitive or redundant statement. But rather, it, he, is, he is showing the progression or digression and progression of the judgment, digression of the people after such judgment would come upon them. For he speaks of the thieves, of course, and that speaks of those who would deceive, those who would steal, but they would do so mostly by deception. Then he speaks of the robbers. And these are not deceivers. These are people who would come and destroy. So both cases, you have theft taking place and that which... Edom possessed being taken or stolen away from them. However, there is a digression in, 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 or a progression in the, in the uh, judgment itself in that there are those who would deceive them and then those who would destroy them. And so we see that being laid out as well in verse 6 when he says that they are ransacked, they are searched out, and they are bare or sought up. In other words, again, as a field or as a uh, you know, as a landscape would be uh, productive and would be used even for cattle or what have you. It's as though they would completely ransacked and grazed bare and there would be nothing left of any benefit or value. It would be totally desolate. And, and so from this, we are reminded that while we, the redeemed, those who've been bought, uh, born again and bought, purchased by God, while we should rejoice in this great deliverance that God has granted, we also should never allow the sheer awe of the severity of God's wrath upon the wicked to leave us unmoved. We need to remember, as I've said so many times to you, that even if you are redeemed tonight, it is only by grace that you've been delivered from the wrath and judgment of God. Only God's grace, nothing we merit, nothing we earn, nothing we can do to deserve such grace, the goodness or the favor of God. And so as we consider those who are abiding under the wrath and judgment of God, it should be that we are in awe at the destruction that is to come upon them. And while we cannot prevent such destruction, and while they deserve such destruction, let us never forget that they don't deserve the wrath of God any more than do we. And so Obadiah is saying, look, this is a terrible situation, and he's prophesying faithfully, understanding Edom deserves such. But yet still, just to consider the fact that there are those who experience such judgment and wrath and utter destruction 
and, and yet God would be faithful in, in His mercy and grace towards His people. Verses 7 through 9, Obadiah explained what the inevitable fall of Edom would look like. In verse 7 he said, All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee. There you have the thieves. And prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding in him. Edom had made alliances with other nations, obviously, as we've already discovered in our study last week. And yet when they sought help from those who were their allies, they found no help. Those who were friendly with Edom Edom deceived or tricked Edom, and they overpowered them. The ones who had proposed as their friends, the ones who had had fellowship with them, if you will, the ones who had eaten at their tables, the ones who had shared their meal. Now it says they laid a snare for Edom. They were deceiving them and, and attempting to overwhelm and overcome them. The Lord furthermore declared that he would destroy the wise men. In verse 8, Shall I in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom, understanding out of the Mount of Esau? The Lord would utterly destroy the ability for the people to rise up by removing their wise and experienced and skillful men, and therefore removing the ingenuity of the people to restore themselves to a people of status. So by removing the wise men and the skilled men, and therefore removing the skill itself and ingenuity itself, the people could never rise up again to any status because they were not going to be capable of doing such. Verse 9. Timon shall be dismayed to the end that every one of the Mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. The mighty men refer to those who were the heroes again or the champions. And Obadiah declares that God would cause the heroes of Edom to become filled with terror. That they would no longer be men of courage, but they would be filled with terror and therefore destroyed. Within verses 10 through 14, which we have read uh, this evening, Within these verses, Obadiah lays out God's indictment against Edom and then rebukes them eight times for their actions against their brothers. While there are eight separate rebukes, they are introduced by the seven times the Lord states that they should not have done what they had done. You find in verse 12, he says, Thou shouldest not. Then he says, Neither shouldest thou. Then he says, Neither shouldest thou again. Verse 13, Thou shouldest not. Thou shouldest not. Then verse 14, the sixth time, neither shouldest thou, and the seventh time, neither shouldest thou. So there are seven times that the Lord says to the people through Obadiah and in his prophecy that they should not have done this, is what he's saying. You should not have done this. You should not have done that. And so he seven times mentions this, but there's literally eight rebukes within these seven introductions by way of thou should not have, or you shouldn't have done this. So these two, there, however, at the same time, are also two verses which precede these seven rebukes. So rebukes begin in verse 12 and, and 13 and 14. But then there's verses 10 and 11, which we have not yet addressed, which we must look at, which, of course, again, usher us into the rebuke or the indictment that God has made to the people of Edom. Verse 10. For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen this. We just saw in verse 9, did we not, that Esau may be cut off by slaughter. Now he says that you'll be cut off forever. God had chosen Jacob to be Israel. We're, we're all aware of that. And the shame of Esau's resentment and Edom's violence against the chosen people of God would be something that would continually overshadow them. It's that which they could never get out from under. In Genesis 27, 41, we'll be looking at several verses here. We read, And Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, 
The days of mourning for my father at hand, then will I slay my brother Jacob. Well, here you find it. Jacob, of course, had deceived Esau. And Esau then, again, forfeits his birthright, if you will. But remember, all this was in the plan and purpose of God. We find in Romans 9, Paul makes that very clear. So uh, Esau's actions, of course, were not a surprise to God by any means. In fact, it's obvious this was going to happen, not to Jacob and Esau per se, but obviously uh, to the Lord. Ezekiel 25, 12-14, thus saith the Lord God, because that Edom had dealt against the house of Judah by taking vengeance, and hath greatly offended, and revenged himself upon them. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, I will also stretch out my hand upon Edom, and will cut off man and beast from it, and I will make it desolate from Taman, and they of Dedan shall fall by the sword. And I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel, and they shall do in Edom according to my anger and according to my fury, that, and they shall know my vengeance, saith the Lord God. Again, we see this this vengeance of God enacted upon Edom. Now, we understand, as it's being described here, that this is the results of their own actions. We recognize that. But again, don't forget something. When you go back or go forward into Romans 9, we have clarity given to us by the Apostle Paul when he, again, quotes from Malachi in explaining that God had already purposed that the elder would serve the younger, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. That it had been written, of course, Jacob have I loved Esau, have I hated. So all this was already fulfilled as far as God was concerned, but yet we see Esau's actions being that of hatred towards Jacob and as well as, as one who was an enemy, and Edom continuing in that, of course. Joel 3.19, Egypt shall be a desolation, and Edom shall be a desolate wilderness for the violence against the children of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. So once again, you see Edom's actions of that of uh, murderous actions. They are those who are filled with hatred towards uh, those who've been blessed of God, Israel and Judah alike. Amos one eleven. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Because he did pursue his brother with the sword and did cast off all pity and his anger did tear perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. He's saying these four things. Did you notice that? He says, I will not turn the punishment away. I, they're going to be cut off. They're going to be destroyed. I will have, uh, there's a curse against them forever. Because first, he did pursue his brother with the sword. Do you remember whenever that literally took place? If you recall, uh, whenever Jacob was pursued by Esau, of course. But then also, uh, he says that, that they did cast off all pity. There was no mercy. Now, now of course, Edom... As the people of Esau, we know that Esau had pity towards uh, Jacob in a sense, or, or God had changed Esau's heart towards his brother when he didn't, when he was great and mighty, and yet he did not slay him, you recall, and followed after him. But he, Jacob was in fear for his own life during that time, if you recall. But then Edom, as a people, as descendants of Esau, still had enmity against Jacob, against Israel. And that continued, and that's part of this indictment tonight that we find within the text. And so he says he did pursue his brother with a sword. He did cast off all pity. Third, his anger did tear perpetually. So there was constant conflict that was present between Edom and Israel. And then he says, and he kept his wrath forever. In other words, the wrath and the anger that was present was constantly present within Edom's heart. So furthermore, we see as Obadiah explained in the latter part of verse 10, Esau therefore would never be able to escape the consequence of his sin. Verse 10 goes on to say, and shall be cut off forever. We see this truth also declared in Ezekiel's prophecy concerning Seir, which was a mountain range of Edom. 
Ezekiel 35, 9 says, I will make the perpetual desolations. Thy city shall not return, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. Now he's speaking to Seir, but Seir again is a mountain range of Edom. This is Edom that's being addressed. And the Lord says, I will make the perpetual desolations. Do you understand what he's saying here? will continually be desolate and destitute. You will continually be in great need. You will continually be insufficient. You will continually be a wasteland. Once again, within this verse in Obadiah, and as supported by the many other verses within other prophecies, as we've even reviewed some of them in these last few moments, we find the Lord's absolute declaration of utter judgment and destruction upon Edom. This is inescapable. There's nothing Edom can do to get out from under the wrath of God. God's wrath is declared upon them, and they are under his wrath, and they will be destroyed. Verse 11. In that day that thou stoodest on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captives his force, captive his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates, and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou wast as one of them. Do you see what he's saying? You stood on the other side. You were against your brother, He says, foreigners entered into his gates, they cast lots upon Jerusalem. In other words, upon the desolation, upon the destruction, upon all the chaos that was happening, they were were obviously opposed to and even making a mockery of, as you'll see in later verses here that we'll read tonight. And you see that he says, you were against them, you acted as one of them. You are Israel's brother, and yet you act as though you are one of the foreigners, you are one of the Gentiles, you are one of the strangers, if you will, of those nations that had no part or nothing to do with Israel, except be their enemy. The Lord lays out Edom's sin, for which he has pronounced such judgment and condemnation upon them within this passage. We find further explanation of Edom's transgression in the prophecy of Amos. In Amos chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, we read, Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Tyrus, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and remembered not the brotherly covenant, but I will send a fire on the wall of Tyrus, which shall devour the palaces thereof. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because he did pursue his brother with a sword, did cast off all pity, and his anger did tear, tear perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So again, we see in Amos, we read that a moment ago, but we read it fuller just now, where you see God's judgment upon Tyrus, upon Edom, again, because of the hatred and the enmity and the opposition against the Lord. Edom pursued Israel and joined with Israel's enemies in an attempt to overcome them. In Psalm 83, 5 and 6 we read, For they consulted together with one consent, they are confederate against thee, the tabernacles of Edom and the Ishmaelites of Moab and the Hagarines. So here you find where he is saying that there is this confederacy that's been formed and Edom is a part of that. The tabernacles of Edom, the Ishmaelites, Moab, the Hagarines. He says they all are in confederacy against who? Against Israel. Such confederacies against God's people, in reality, it was an act of rebellion against the Lord and His chosen people as it would show forth. Remember something. It's really no wonder that the world hates the church today. It's, if the church is truly living in, in truth or following and walking in truth, if the church is is pursuing after righteousness, meaning following after the Lord and submission unto Him, 
it's no wonder that the world hates the church. And I would remind you of the words of Jesus when he told his disciples, he warned them before his, his ascension, if you recall, before his uh, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, he said to them, if the world hate you, remember it hated me first. He said, the world's going to hate you. Well, again, the reason that's true is because when Christ's spirit indwelt them, then now the representation of Christ in the world were the believers. And Christ was, and his life and his power was being manifested and demonstrated through them, and therefore it reminded them of Jesus. But here's why the world is so adamant, why Satan is so adamant in his attack against the church and against uh, the believer, is because there's nothing that Satan can do literally against the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So what is he going to do? He's going to attack the representation of Christ in the world, which is the church. And so you find there's no wonder that the people in the world during uh, the Old Testament, of course, the Gentiles, and you find Edom as well, Esau's descendants, that they hated Israel. They, they themselves uh, could not attack God, but they're rebellion against God. And you say, wait a minute, how were they in rebellion against God? Well, you can't tell me for one moment that the Gentiles not have much rather been blessed of God as was Israel than Israel be blessed of God. And so they obviously do not like this at all. Therefore, their hatred is really towards the Lord. But because they cannot reach the Lord, who are they going to attack? They're going to attack the representatives that are present. And so it should not strike us odd or strange at all that this is the case. Let's look at verses 12 through 14. But thou shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither shouldest thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shouldest thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. That thou shouldest not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Yea, thou shouldest not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Neither shouldest thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither shouldest thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. So within these three verses, 12, 13, and 14, we see God's indictment upon Edom. The Lord calls their attention back to their former acts of aggression and or passivity against their brothers, and more importantly, against God's chosen people. Now again, I told you there are eight charges against Edom. Seven times we find neither shouldest thou or thou shouldest not. We find some type of form or derivative of that statement made seven times. But there's actually eight charges. And these eight charges against Edom include both their attitude first and then their actions against their brothers. The first five charges address Edom's attitude towards his brother, while the last three charges regard the actions of Edom against his brother. Let me remind you of something. That is this. Our actions are evidence of our attitude. In other words, that's true in, in every aspect. So, concerning our worship unto the Lord, I've often said to you, worship really is the attitude of our heart toward God. Meaning, if we genuinely are worshiping the Lord, it's because we see Him as worthy of submission, as worthy of service, and He alone to be worthy. Therefore, our attitude towards God is a proper attitude in which we see Him for who He is as much as is possible as He's declared Himself to be, and we in turn, see ourselves for what we are and recognize that it is a privilege that we could serve him. It is a privilege that we'd be called to worship him, that we would be called to honor and praise him and that he would be glorified through our lives. This is a privilege. This is an honor. And so when we recognize that and we genuinely worship God, genuinely, not just come to church services and 
cry and raise hands. No, when we genuinely are submitted to the Lord, it's because our attitude towards God is as it should be, recognizing Him to be worthy as He is. And the same is true as well. The same is true as well towards one another. For whenever we have attitudes of preferring one another above ourselves, as Scripture commands about the mind of Christ being in us in such a manner, when we have attitudes of serving one another, that's going to then be evident in our actions, in what we actually do, what we actually say, how we actually live. And so we find that to be true here, of course, in the indictments first being that of the attitude, then moving on to the actions of Edom against the brethren, their brothers. Verse 12 begins, But thou shouldest not have looked on that, the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. The, the, the verb looked here refers to examining or inspecting or spying. And the use of the word in this context implies that Edom was gloating in Israel's adversity. So here Israel is, and Israel no doubt being under the, the, uh, the chastening of God or God in the sense that God is correcting them. Remember, the only time that Israel found themselves suffering um, under the attack of others in which they were not victorious, or the only time Israel found themselves being defeated while going out to attack others or to conquer land as God commanded them, such as in the book of Joshua, the only time you ever find them uh, suffering loss in either case is when they themselves were not submitted to the Lord and worshiped to Him. And therefore, God would use such means to judge them and correct them. And so here they are under the judgment of God, not the wrath of God in the sense of God annihilating them, obviously, but yet they're still under the judgment and correction of God. And in that time, here, here Edom is, is looking on them in the sense that they are gloating in the fact that they are being judged, that they are under correction. Verse 12 goes on to say, Neither shouldest thou, number two, here's the second one, the second indictment, Neither shouldest thou, having rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Now the verb rejoiced here means gladdened. And the implication is, of course, that the destruction of Judah made Edom glad. They were happy with their calamity. It's almost this mentality, of course, in which they would look upon someone else who now is suffering and going, Oh, wow, that makes us feel better. Look, it's a, we, we are a sad lot when we look at someone else's suffering or someone else's judgment or someone else's correction or chastening, and that makes us feel better about ourselves. And yet Edom is doing just that. They're gloating in, in Israel's adversity, and they are, they are glad about Judah's uh, calamity. Verse 12 goes on to say, 3, Neither shouldest thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. Now, the adverb proudly refers to a boastful mockery. So Edom, not only, not only were they looking at, at Israel's adversity and gloating in that, not only were, was, was Judah's destruction causing them to be glad in heart, but now it says that they, they should have spoken proudly in the day of distress which is speaking of this boastful mockery. So Edom was boastful in their mockery of the anxiety of this brother. So it's becoming more visible and vocal, if you will. If you can see, like, again, the progression here. It's like, okay, so the attitude was that, that you know, uh, they're, they're, they're under judgment. We're kind of spying this out. And, and this, of course, is, is causing us to, 
you know, to feel better about ourselves uh, gloating in this. But then it's like, oh, yeah, and, and Judah's destruction, boy, we're, we're glad that that's being done. That's taken care of. And it makes them feel better about their own sin, about their, their, own, their own condition. And then he says that they, they're proud about this mockery and this boastful mockery. So they are now just boastful, outwardly boastful about this, and they're, they're proud about the suffering of their brothers. Proverbs uh, addresses the gravity of, of the sinful action which we find in verse 13. He goes on now in verse 13 and says, Thou shouldest not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. So here again, Edom is being rebuked for mockery, mocking the calamity of his brother. In Proverbs 17.5 we read, Whoso mocketh the poor reproacheth his maker, and he that is glad at calamity shall not be unpunished. So when one is rejoicing at the calamity of another, I've often shared with you, it's, it's very sad that this is true, but it's as though we live in a day where this seems to be quite, quite prevalent and prominent, that people, rather than there being, being a genuine spiritual maturity and growth that is consistently seen within the gathered visible body of Christ as, the, as people would profess to be, it's almost as though, rather than they're being rejoicing in the church because people are spiritually maturing and growing in the faith, it would appear as though there's more so rejoicing when someone begins to fall or into sin or begins to fall away in the sense because they're falling back, if you will. When I say that, they're, 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 their lack of moving forward and continuing in truth and growth actually makes people who are stagnant and still feel better about themselves as though they are progressing. I use this as an example. Uh, I mentioned this in our theology class just the other night, a few weeks back. But years ago, I remember uh, as a much, much younger man, I was sitting at a red light uh, in my vehicle, and I, had the, uh, I was sitting there with a the brake applied, of course, and I'm stopped, and I'm looking down at the seat at something, and I saw movement. I, I, saw, I saw movement beside me, and I thought, because I was, was not looking ahead, I thought that I had let off my brake and that I was moving forward. And so I just slammed the brake on immediately because I'm in a red light. About, I thought, I'm about to get creamed. And so I just hit the brake as hard as I can, and there was absolutely no change. And I looked beside me, and what had happened was a car had pulled up too far, and he began to he put it in reverse and was backing up. And, and because I was looking down and not looking forward, follow this, the movement I saw behind me, I thought I was actually moving forward while it was actually I was sitting still someone else was moving backwards. And I'm afraid that that's where we find ourselves so often today in which people, they, rather than moving forward and maturing and growing, it's like as soon as someone begins to show digress, so to speak, not going forward and, and there's sin involved, it's as though we think, oh, we're really, really, no, that's not the case at all necessarily. And so we should never look at someone else's uh, calamity or someone else's judgment as though that's spiritual progress in our own lives. How foolish it is to think such a way or to do such a thing. He goes on to say, verse 13, Nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Now here we find the last three of these uh, exhortations of rebuke, if you will, against these indictments against Edom. And I told you the first five were all about the attitude. Now we have action. And action comes forth from attitude. 
So our actions are revealing the truth of what's within. That's the point. And here you see he says, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. So here we find that, that from the sinful attitude towards his brother, Edom also acted simply against his brother. So in moments of Israel's judgment, Edom had, had a part in, their, in the plundering of Jerusalem. Edom was involved. They took advantage of the situation. It's not only they had this hateful attitude towards God's people, but now that attitude's becoming action, and they're laying hands on the, on the possessions and the goods, and they're plundering the city. Verse 14, Neither shouldest thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Again, you find an action present. While there were those of Israel who would have escaped from this this. Uh, invasion upon the city, he's saying Edom, having knowledge of the escape routes of his brother, having knowledge of the city itself, prevented them from escaping when there was an attack of the city. So they stood in the way. They're blocking them from being able to escape and get away. Then look at verse 14. Neither shouldest thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. So rather than assisting his brother, Edom delivered them up or gave them to the enemy. So the actions of Edom are clear that they hated God's chosen people. And they acted against them at every opportunity. Their attitude showed this. They mocked them. They rejoiced in their destruction and their calamity. But then they stood in the way of their escape and then delivered them up to those who would pursue. So the Lord explains his harsh judgment upon Edom, and he does so with detailed explanation of Edom's guilt against not only his brother, but against the Lord. For one to stand and act against God's people is to declare opposition and rebellion against the Lord himself. Such an attitude and such actions will not go unpunished. The Lord will faithfully deliver his own and judge the ungodly. Simon Peter reminds us of this truth in 2 Peter 2.9 when he wrote, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. You know, again, it's as though it would seem, even like in Israel's day, whenever God would be correcting them, chastening them, judging them, if you will, and bringing them back to the worship of himself, it would seem as though, no doubt, even among the people of Israel, that they might look at those around them while they are being corrected by God and under judgment of God for the sake of correction and chastening, that that the people, the evil people did prosper. You find that through the Psalms, do you not? Where the wicked prosper, the wicked continue, the wicked, and, and that would be what would seem to be the case. But Peter's reminding us here, of course, generally speaking, and within a specific context, but Peter's reminding us that the truth of the matter is, while we may look around or while we might look and see and think, wait a minute, the wicked uh, seem to flourish while the, the righteous seem to be under such oppression and such distress and such attack. The fact of the matter is, God keeps good record and he knows the truth and he is just and the fact of the matter is god can deliver us from every trial he faithfully will deliver us and in the end we will be with him for all eternity and in the end the wicked will be judged in under the wrath of god for all eternity god knows how to deliver the righteous and he knows how to reserve the wicked unto the day of judgment so We as the redeemed, again, I remind you as we see with Obadiah, even in his statements of exclamation concerning the judgment to come upon Edom, might I remind you as well that we live in a world in which there are uh, multiplied numbers of 
men and women and children who are perishing, who are in spiritual darkness, and who love the darkness rather than the light. And while I understand there's not one man, one boy, one woman, one girl who deserves the grace of God. We all deserve the wrath and judgment of God. Every human being. Yet, yet, I'm also reminded that there's not one person out there that deserves that judgment any more so than do I. And so we have the privilege of the gospel. Here, here Obadiah is faithfully declaring the prophecy of Edom's destruction, and, and Edom was going to be destroyed. And we really are in the same position. There is a world that is under the wrath of God that is going to absolutely, as much so as Edom was eradicated, so this world will be ultimately eradicated. Every sinful, wicked, unregenerate man, woman, boy, and girl will perish, period. Apart from God's divine intervention interrupting their lives divinely in redemption. But might I say to you that we have the stewardship of the gospel to declare the light of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. And we should do so again remembering that were it not for the grace of God, we would still be in the same destitute, desolate condition. So God's redeemed us. He has delivered us. And praise be to his name for that. But let us not sit back and gloat in the destruction of others. But let us rather declare the redemption and salvation that's in Jesus Christ. As we will see again, the closing verse of this whole prophecy is that the kingdom is the Lord's. It's the Lord's kingdom. That's the only kingdom that will last. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we thank you again for...